The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We're studying the gospel of Mark together. We're calling this whole thing the journey. And this morning we're looking at a message I've entitled uh, Sowing. Mark chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. He began to teach again by the sea, and such a very great multitude gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this, behold, the sower went out to sow. It came about that as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the, ground, the road, and the birds came up and ate it. And other seed fell on the rocky soil, where it did not have much so rocky ground, where it did have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, because it had no root and it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. And other seeds fell into the good soil... And as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, in order that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven." And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? Father, as we open the word and look at it today, we pray that your spirit, the spirit that guides us into truth, that illuminates a text, would do that very thing to us. So we open our heart, spirit of God, to the truth of your word. We pray that you teach us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Parable of the sower, quite a familiar passage in God's word. We often have different responses to the same event. That's what this parable shows us. We have different responses to the same event. The same event was the sowing of the seed, but as you can see, there are different responses to the sowing of that seed. Happened in our family a number of years ago. We had different responses to the same event. If you've been here for years, you've heard this story. It's been a number of years since we used it, or since I told it anyway. Uh, but it was Easter Sunday. Bev was actually in uh, a Scott and White recuperating from a surgery she had. My folks were in town uh, helping me with the kids at that time, and they were little, probably about uh, five and seven, I think. And so after church services, we ended up at uh, the Ponderosa Motel. How many of you old temple folks remember the Ponderosa? The Ponderosa became the Inn at Scott and White. You remember that? Inn at Scott and White was there, and now it's a parking lot for Scott and White. So we went from motels to parking lots in a matter of the last 30 years. But anyway, they had a really nice brunch that day, so we ended up there for Easter Sunday brunch. Well, as you know, on Easter Sundays, if you go out and eat, it's real crowded, so all the tables were shoved close together. First course is a salad bar, so we went out and got our salads. When we got back to our seats, we're scrunched in together. If uh, we're sitting, my son was sitting here, there's another table with an uh, older gentleman and his wife sitting over there. And uh, Daniel loved cherry tomatoes. You ever have something that happens in your life and it's like everything is in slow motion? That's what happened. Daniel bit down. He's, he's here sitting, and we prayed, and now he takes his first bite, very first bite of that tomato, and the edge of his teeth, and there's an old man sitting there, and all of a sudden, it's kind of like the St. Louis arch, the arch in St. Louis. All of a sudden, the juice from that tomato goes straight in the air, and uh, it starts to come down, and it comes down. And the old man sitting at the table had a hairline just like mine right now. And it ended up, a bunch of that juice ended up on the back of that man's head. So we had different responses to the same event. 
Uh, my daughter, Sarah, who was only, if Daniel was five, she was seven. They're two years apart. They're now in their 30s. It was a number of years ago. Sarah immediately just burst out laughing. She's laughing. I mean, it's the funniest thing she's ever seen in her life. I immediately shield Daniel's mouth so he doesn't take another bite and squirt more tomato juice anywhere. The uh, man looks up at the ceiling to see if it started raining or something. <laughs> My mom, who's sitting out here, she instinctively grabbed her cloth napkin without saying a word, takes it, and starts wiping the top of the man's head off. <laughs> His wife, sitting across, doesn't crack a smile. The whole restaurant's laughing. who's seen this happen, and she's over there just stone-faced. So if you happen to be here this Sunday, we apologize for running your Easter brunch years ago. Um, we didn't do it intentionally. We apologized profusely that day. And, uh, but you have made your legend in our family, and you've made a great sermon illustration today. <laughs> Different responses to the same event. I mean, we all, we all experience it, don't we? When, when you read this parable, that's what you see. The event is sowing the seed of the word. But what we see are different responses. What are those responses and how did they get there? That's what we're going to look at this morning. The different responses to the parable of the sower. The setting is found in verse 1. This is Agriculture 101, if you will. The setting is found in verse 1. It says, Jesus began to teach again by the sea. So we, we know where they are. They're by the seashore, the Sea of Galilee. And there was such a great multitude that they put him into a boat and he sat down and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. So you've got the setting I mean, there are a bunch of people pressing in the Christ. The disciples said, we're going to take care of this. So they put Jesus in a boat so the people can't get to him. And Jesus is there talking to the crowds. If you write in your Bibles under the word sit down or sat down, rather sat down. I mean, that's an unusual position for us. When we teach, we stand up, don't we? If I'm going to teach the word, we come to the front, we stand up. If it's me, Stephen, Chase, or any of the guys, we come and stand. But in the ancient Near East, the position of authority was the seated position. And so if you go to Israel with us, we'll go to some synagogues, ancient synagogues, and you'll see the rabbinical seat, the seat of the rabbi. And so in that day and age, rabbis would sit to teach. And so Jesus goes to this boat, and he sits down to begin teaching the multitude. And you're thinking, well, how can that happen? Well, here's a picture of a place in Israel called the Bay of Parables. Now, there's no way that we know for certain that this is where Jesus was teaching on this day, but Israelis have a way to make money, and you can go there, pay a price, and you can see that particular thing, and they'll say this is where the parables took place. Now, we're not sure of that, but this gives you an idea of two things. First of all, topographically what it looked like. Take away the vegetation, see the crowds, Christ at the seashore, and a boat right next to the sea, and you can see acoustically also how that could happen. And so Christ is seated in a boat, the, the multitudes are there, and uh, Christ is teaching. He's teaching. So that's the setting. It's all found in verse 1. This is an idea of what it might have looked like. And uh, Christ begins to teach in parables. So the question we have to ask ourselves, what is the purpose of parables? What is a parable? I mean, when you look at God's word, what is a parable? I, I love what one author, Ken Geyer, says. He says, a parable is a kernel of spiritual truth surrounded by a husk of an earthly story. Let me say that again. That's, he's a beautiful wordsmith. A parable is a kernel of spiritual truth surrounded by a husk, by a husk of an earthly story. Basically, it's taking that which is understood and known by everyone, a picture, an illustration, an event, and using that to teach a spiritual truth. See, everybody in that society knew what a sower looked like because sowers were common in an agrarian society. I'll show you a picture in a minute of what it looked like. 
But, but the, the reality of what we're looking at here is he's using a very common site in the ancient Near East, in Israel, that they would understand, and he's going to use that to teach these people. And then when you drop down to verse 10, it says, as soon as he was, so a parable is a story used to teach a spiritual truth is the bottom line or an event, something very common. As soon as he was alone with his followers, so now it's just the disciples and other people who are true seekers of Christ, true followers of Christ. They begin asking about these parables. That's verse 10. And then look at verse 11. He said to those following him, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. So once again, if you write in your Bibles, underline the mystery of the kingdom of God. Jesus is very specific. He says, we're talking about the kingdom. I'm a king. I'm offering you a kingdom. This is what we're talking about. These are the mysteries of the kingdom. And he goes on to say, he said, uh, you hear these things, or I'm talking about the mysteries, but those outside get everything in parables. I'm going to explain it to you. In fact, that at verse 13 he says, don't you understand this parable? If you drop down to verse 34, it says he did not speak to them without a parable, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. So he spoke in parables for two reasons, to reveal truth and to conceal truth, to reveal truth and to conceal truth. So, Gary, what are you saying? I mean, we get excited when we hear that Christ is speaking to reveal truth. I mean, he takes the disciples and he says, I'll explain these things to you. And then he goes into an explanation beginning in verse 14. But it should bother you for me to say that Christ concealed truth. It should bother you when I say that. I mean, why did Christ not speak plainly? Why did Christ not speak in words that were obscure or pictures that were obscure to the masses. Why? I I mean, if if you look at this verse, this is called a hard saying of Christ. If you look at verse 12, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, the nation of Israel has been wayward. He's calling them to repentance, and and now he quotes that, and he says, he says, I speak in parables so that while seeing uh, they may see and not perceive, while hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. What? Christ, you're going to speak in parables so they don't return and are not forgiven? You're the Messiah. You're the King. You're the Savior. Why would you do that? Don't you want everybody to hear and understand? Don't you want them to, to see and perceive? I mean, isn't that why you came? So what do you do with this verse? I'll let you go home and study and come back and tell me next week. I mean, this is called a hard saying of Jesus. And it is a hard say. I mean, we get all excited when Christ reveals truth, but what about when Christ conceals truth? Well, if you look at the context, look at the context, we know what's already taken place. For instance, back up to Mark chapter 3, the first verse. Christ enters a synagogue. There's a man with a withered hand. We studied this two weeks ago. They were watching him. He heals this guy on the Sabbath. And how do they respond? They respond in verse 6. The Pharisees went out to counsel with the Herodians about how they might destroy Christ. And then Christ cast out the demon from a man who is mute, beginning in verse 22 of the same chapter. And they say he's possessed, verse 22, he's possessed by Beelzebub. He cast out demons by the ruler of demons. You see, what Christ has done in his message and in his miracles is present to them the truth that he was the Messiah. And they've rejected him time and time again. In fact, those who were following, who were not his true disciples, they came for the meals and the miracles. They came to assault him and to assassinate him. 
They came not to follow after the Savior, they, to, to follow after His truth. They came because they wanted to see the greatest miracle on earth, so to speak. And we're not talking about the cross. We're talking about getting what He was giving. And so Christ says they've had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and they reject me. They assault me. They want to assassinate me. They want meals. They want miracles. And so now I'm going to speak in parables. It's very clear, the words of Christ. He says, I'm going to reveal truth to you. In fact, verse 34, he explained everything to the disciples in private. He gives an explanation of this parable. But to those who are rejecting me, those who turn their back on me, those who will not be persuaded, this wicked and adulterous generation, they ask for a sign. The only sign I'm going to give to them now is the same as the sign of Jonah. I'm going to die and be resurrected. That's the next sign. So they would have that opportunity, but they wouldn't understand these parables. So the purpose of parables is pretty clear. Jesus is, the religious hierarchy have accused Jesus of being of Satan. And in fact, when he said that in the book of Matthew, Jesus says to them, whoever is not with me is against me. Draw a line in the sand. A further line in the sand is parables. He's saying, if you're here for the meals and miracles and to assault and assassinate me, you're not going to stand a word I'm saying. So what does this parable mean? What does this parable mean? Let's look at the very beginning of the parable. We don't want to miss the obvious. Jesus is painting a very familiar picture for his hearers. It's a familiar sight in Israel. In fact, it would look something like this. Those who sowed seed sowed seed usually in one of two ways. Either they carried a bag with seed in it and they broadcast it over the ground that had been tilled, prepared, fertilized, or they carried a basket and had their seeds in a basket. And so they would broadcast the seed over land that had been tilled and fertilized and prepared. It's a familiar scene, just as we might drive through East Bell County and see tractors and combines and harvesters, and we don't think twice about it. In Israel, they would see these. In fact, it's possible Jesus was pointing to a sower in the field at this point in time. So let's look at the sower. We don't know that. We're not sure of the exact setting, but it's possible. If not, it certainly is that husk of truth that they would all see and have experienced. It was quite a familiar sight in Israel. So I don't want you to miss the obvious. Look at verse 14. The sower sows the word. The sower sows the word. Circle the word sows. The sower sows the word. Don't miss the obvious. Sowers sow. Sowers sow. I mean, that's the obvious. Don't miss it. We, it's easy for us to miss the obvious. Back during the years of communism, there was a uh, lumber yard and in the lumber yard were workers, and uh, there was one worker that could take sawdust out, and there was one worker who every day would come out with a wheelbarrow, and he'd go before the guard. The guard would search the sawdust and try and find whatever the man was stealing, but he couldn't find anything. He'd let the guy go. This went on for month after month after month for several years. Every day the guy comes out with a wheelbarrow full of sawdust. The guard looks at it, and he cannot determine what the guy's taking. So the factory's going to close down. Uh, the last day of the factory, the guard pulls the man aside with his barrel full of, or his wheelbarrow full of sawdust. And he says, comrade, all these months, for several years, you've walked out. I've searched. I can't find what you're taking. If you'll tell me, it's your secret. It's our secret. Comrade, what are you taking? And he looked at him and said, comrade, wheelbarrows. so easy to miss the obvious. The dude stealing wheelbarrows every day. 
sowers sow. We are the sowers. That which we sow is a seed of the word of God. In fact, in the parallel passages, or in Mark 4, it says the farmer sows the word. In the parallel passage in Luke 8:11, it says the seed is the word of God. Sowers sow. That's the privilege we have. It's the responsibility we have. We are called to sow, to cast the seed. You don't expect to harvest without sowing seed. I don't walk out in my backyard looking for tomatoes. You know why? Why? I don't have tomato plants. I haven't planted seeds. I hadn't bought plants. They're not in my backyard. If I want tomatoes, you know what I do? I go to H-E-B or you give them to me. You've been a little slack on that lately too, by the way. I mean, only, that's the only way I'm going to get tomatoes. I don't have tomatoes in my backyard. There are no tomatoes out there. I hadn't planted any, hadn't cast any seeds, hadn't planted plants. It's not going to happen. There's no harvest of tomatoes because the seeds have not been cast. Sowers sow the seed. The other thing to note in this parable, the seed was sown among all types of soil. I mean, the, 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 how many of you lived on a farm, farmed, or ever planted a garden? How many of you have done that? You lived on a farm, you farmed, or planted a garden at some point in time. I mean, where do you sow seeds? You sow it where the soil has been prepared. You don't go out and say, well, there's some rocks. I'm going to go through some seeds over there. Or, or here's a hardened place where we walk all the time. I'm going to drop a few seeds there. You don't do that. Or you don't say, man, here's where all the weeds are growing. I'm going to go plant a few seeds there. I mean, if you're going to plant seeds, or if you're going to put seeds in the ground, you're going to prepare the ground, you're going to fertilize the ground, you're going to water the ground, you're going to sow seeds where seeds can grow. We've got a gracious father who's a farmer who says, I want you to go and cast seeds everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And all these different types of soil, the seed is cast. And a lot of people look at this passage and this hard saying of Jesus and say, how can he do that? And I look at this and say, here's the father saying, go sow the seed everywhere. Take the seed and cast it. Sowers sow. We don't know what kind of soil is receiving that. So we go and we sow everywhere. And by the way, a seed is an appropriate illustration of the gospel here. Seeds cannot be created. They can only be reproduced. God does not call us to go and create our own seed. He doesn't say create your own message. The message is very clear. The message is given to us. It's Jesus. The message that we sow is given to us in the Gospels. It is the Gospel. Lives are not changed by our catchy phrases, by our abilities to spin a tale. It's not some message that we make up. The Gospel is very clear. So let me stop for a moment and ask you an applicational question. When's the last time you've sown the seed? Really? Last time you've sown the seed of the word with an unbeliever. When? You know, a lot of people say, Gary, my faith is a private matter. Really? Show me. Show me. Your Your faith is personal, but it's not private. Your faith is personal. It's your relationship with Christ. Now, we're part of a larger community, but it's personal. I can't find a place in here where it's supposed to be private, though, ever. And so you have been called to be a sower of that seed wherever you go. The problem is, most of us as believers, what happens is we end up finding a community of like-minded believers, and we're satisfied with that, and we could care less about those who don't know the Savior. That's the reality of the evangelical church in our day and age. 
I mean, we really don't. I mean, here's the reality. You guys are going, man, Gary, you're not going to believe what happened. We've got to eat some. We're all bel- I found seven other brothers, and we play golf together. I am sure that's fun, but why don't you, throw, why don't you get seven brothers and throw an unbeliever in there? Well, what if he cusses? How many of you guys have never heard a curse word on the golf course? God bless your virgin ears. But what if he cusses? You know what? you got seven dudes there who love Jesus. Why don't you throw this guy in the cart with y'all and let them see how believers behave on the golf course? Our pacemakers. I, I love our pacemakers, dear brothers. And I, it's our older group. One of our folks came up to me and said, uh, man, Gary, we had a great trip. We saw the Bush Museum. We heard a great sermon for a change from Chuck Swindoll. Didn't say for a change, actually. But. And, then, and then this person said, we even had a Christian bus driver. And I turned to that person and said, that's too bad. What do you mean? Well, you got 40 believers on a bus and you want a believer as a bus driver? Some of our most godly folks are these older folks. I mean, these are godly, godly people. Imagine if an unbeliever saw all of you acting like the, like the bride of Christ. Can you imagine how that man's life could have been changed eternally? I get folks come to me and say, Gary, pray for me. I'm the only believer in my office. Pray for me. And You know, the holidays are coming. I'm the only believer in my family. And I know what they mean, but here's what I say. Man, I'll be glad to pray for you. God has entrusted you with a mission field. That's amazing. That's amazing. You shouldn't be bemoaning the fact that you're the only believer in your office. You should be celebrating that God trusts you enough with that mission field. You know, our problem is we want to be surrounded by believers all the time. Look what we got. What you have is the seed to sow eternally. We go to Christian school. Believe it or not, there are some unbelievers on campus. You guys know that? They're a couple. They're a couple. You've got the opportunity to sow the seed of the word. That's amazing. That's amazing. You go to work. You work across from a dude all the time. You ever sow the seed? You know your neighbor? You teach in the junior high, high school, the colleges. Do you sow the seed of the word in the lives of these people? Wow, what a privilege. Sowers sow. Don't miss the obvious. Don't miss the obvious. The gospel's not complicated. You pray, you share, and you care. Aren't you glad that this missionary guy went to some Rwandan village to share with Celestin? Most of you guys were here last week. One dude goes to some obscure village in Rwanda month after month, and if you weren't here last week, you got to go online and listen. We interviewed a dear friend of mine, Celestin, and this missionary went into the, into the bush of Africa to a village, and this young, this young man, as a teenager, comes to faith in Christ, and now he heads up an international ministry because somebody sowed the seed. There's a 12-year-old girl. She was interested in church and spiritual things, and her parents didn't attend, and so occasionally they would drop her off by herself, and she would hear the truth. But there was a neighbor lady who took interest in this 12-year-old girl. And the neighbor lady invited her to go to church with her. And sometime during the course of that year, that 12-year-old girl came to faith in the Savior. You never know the impact you can make. Say a 12-year-old girl sitting right there, my bride. And that lady, Miss Kelly, I think was her name, Miss Kelly, already in eternity. See, she didn't know the impact she would have. She marries me, and together we have the privilege of ministering here and around the world. Because one lady sowed the seed of the gospel in a 12-year-old girl. Who's your Bev? 
Who's that little girl in your neighborhood? Little boy that plays with your sons and daughters that needs to come and hear the truth of the gospel. Who's the dudes that live next door to you, you play golf with, have a lease with? Sowers sow the seed. It's a simple truth, an obvious truth, but we forget that truth. So, Jesus, what does this parable mean? You're speaking in parables, what does it mean? Well, he explains the whole thing to the disciples. I mean, you look at verse 4, it says, It came about that as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. So he explains it in verse 15. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown, and when they hear it, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. If you go to Luke in the parallel passage in Luke 8, I'll just read it to you. Here's Christ's explanation. It says, The devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. So these are people, you you sow the word to them. You sow the seed of the word to them. You sow the seed of the gospel, but it never penetrates the heart. They never come to faith. They're never saved. That's what Luke says. So Satan comes along and he takes a seed and it's gone. Israel is covered with fields. There was a growing culture. There were no fences. So that which divided the fields oftentimes was a pathway. The pathway would become hardened from animals and farmers that would walk between the pathway. So this seed is cast out. It falls upon this hard soil. It doesn't penetrate anywhere. You and I know people like that. This is how Paul describes these people in 2 Corinthians. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Jesus is saying their hearts are hardened. Paul is saying that their, their eyes are blinded. They can't see the truth, hear the truth, understand the truth, or respond to the truth. They're not involved. The hard-hearted person is one who has no sorrow over sin, no brokenness over evil, no guilt over wrongdoing, no remorse for hurting others. They're callous and indifferent towards the things of God and the ways of God. That's how Israel was. They're rejecting the king. They're rejecting the Savior. They're rejecting the Messiah. This is a picture of them, and it's a picture of the individual as well. They're rejecting. Individuals are rejecting. These were the hard hearts. Secondly, we have shallow hearts. We have shallow hearts. You look in verse 5, it says the other seed fell on the rocky ground. It didn't have much soil. Immediately it sprang up because it had no depth. After the sun had risen, it scorched it because it had no root. It withered away. Jesus explains that in verses 16 and 17. He says, in a similar way, these are the ones in whom seed was sown in the rocky places. They hear the word, they rejoice immediately, and they have no firm root in themselves, but only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution comes because of the word immediately, they fall away. These shallow hearts, I believe, are people who hear truth and respond to truth, but they never really have truth penetrate their heart that's salvific. They never come to faith in Christ. They have an emotional experience that the word doesn't penetrate fully their heart. And there is another interpretation of that, and that is these are true believers who fall away, uh, either losing their salvation, which we don't believe, or fall away and they become carnal Christians. I think the picture here is of somebody who hears the word, receives it, they get religion, they get excited, they get baptized, but they don't truly know the Savior. Trials come and afflictions come and they fall away. The job doesn't pan out. The money doesn't work out. The friends don't invite you out. Your marriage, you want out. Your health heads south. Your kids go north, and you quit. I've seen that happen so many times over 30 years. They're mad at God, mad at life, and they run. I've heard this phrase from a number of people. I've tried the Christian thing. What do you mean you've tried it? What do you mean? It's not like joining junior league. This is the forgiveness of sins for eternal life. 
And so you look at this passage, and there are a lot of folks that are like this. I think Judas was like this. Judas was close to the kingdom, but he never went through the gates. He knew all about Christ. He was around Christ. He participated in things. He did. He did. He did. He cast out demons. He preached the word. He did all that stuff. When Jesus sent him out two by two, Judas was one of those guys to preach the word and to cast out demons. Judas did all that stuff. They feed five thousand. Guess who's there passing out fish and chips? Judas. I mean, he sees all these miracles. Here's this message. But he's the son of perdition. And I believe that's what we're talking about here. Shallow heart. Trials, persecution come and they run. There's a, there's a third type of heart here, a worldly heart. If you look at uh, verse 7, it says, Other seed fell among the thorns. The thorns came up, choked it out, yielded no crop. Jesus explains that in verses 18 and 19. Others are the seed that was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who've heard the word, the words of the world, deceitfulness of riches, desire for other things come in and choke out the word, and it's unfruitful. Some would say this is a believer who starts following after the world. They're kind of like Demas. Remember Demas in 2 Timothy 4? Demas, Paul says, he loved this world, deserted me. Paul's at the end of his life. 2 Timothy is the last book he wrote. And uh, when we look at that, he says, Demas, he took off after the world. Personally, I believe there's another person. If I had to categorize these people, I think there's another person who hears the word, has immediate response, but it doesn't penetrate. He looks at the things of the world, embraces those, and not the word. Can't have two masters. Money can't be one master. Deceitfulness of riches and Christ be the other is one or the other. Does that mean we quit sinning? No, we always sin. Those that know the Savior, walk with the Savior, honor the Savior, they turn to the Savior when sin takes place. But, you know, one of the things that catches my attention here is this whole concept of the deceitfulness of riches. We live in a culture that buys into that. As a church, we struggle with that. As people of the church, we struggle with that. Uh, Fred Smith said this, there's some persistent quirk in our thinking that convinces us that temporal things will give us permanent joy. We think stuff will bring us happiness. So we got stuff. I got stuff, you got stuff. In America, in 2009, every day, every single day in America, we bought almost two million movie t- or almost uh, four million movie tickets. We downloaded almost two million songs or albums every day. We bought, uh, we didn't go buy title of stock, Bill. I mean, she's uh, Golf pro down here. Over half a million Titleist golf balls sold every day. It didn't include all the other golf balls. Yeah, not enough. (laughs) He says we need to sell more. Um, Almost a half a million large french fries at Burger King are sold every day. That's a lot of stinking french fries. That's why we're a fat society. 161,000 bottles of absolute vodka. I bet there, I don't know how many vodkas are made out there. It's just one. That's just absolute. I don't know what's so good about it. Over 7,500 Samsung TVs sold in America every day in 2009. Uh, I don't know the size of those things. I don't know if those are big screens or little, but that's a lot of TVs. Happiness can be found in stuff, being able to indulge yourself in stuff. We in America should be deliriously happy. We should be telling one another frequently of unparalleled bliss rather than trading our prescriptions. Yeah, I'm not dissing prescriptions. I mean, I've been there in the last few months, but... The reality of it is, if stuff brings us happiness, we should be deliriously happy. Hold tightly what's eternal, lightly what's temporal. Finally, there are receptive hearts. Receptive hearts. If you look at verse 20, and those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. They hear the word, they accept it, they bear fruit 30, 60, 
in hundredfold. So this brings us to the climax of the parable. Jesus said the first guy, his heart is so hard, Satan comes, snatches away. Second guy is so rocky, trials and persecution comes, and seed bears no fruit. And the third guy, man, he's snuffed out by the deceitfulness of riches and the worries of this world, and there's no fruit in his life. But this other guy, this other guy, he hears the word, he accepts the word, and his life bears fruit. Now, I I think the purpose of this particular parable is twofold. I think the purpose of this parable is, first of all, to show to the disciples encouragement. Remember, when Mark is writing this, or when Christ is speaking this, he's speaking it, and and Christ is speaking to the disciples, explaining to them, he says, by the way, guys, there are those that are going to come along, and you're going to cast the seed, they're going to have hard hearts, and they're not going to accept it, and others, they're going to come along, and you're going to be disappointed because they're going to fall away, and others are going to come along, and they're going to follow you for a little while, but the the world's going to snuff them out, and they're going to fall away as well, but guys, I want you to know that this is going to return 30, 60, and 100-fold. Guys, don't give up. Don't become discouraged. Don't quit. There'll be a harvest if you keep sowing. Christ is explaining to the disciples that there's a harvest coming. There's a harvest coming. Don't stop. It should be encouragement to us. It should be great encouragement to us. But remember, he's also speaking to the crowds. Talking to Jewish people who are on the seashore. Most of you. The offer of the kingdom and who I am as a Messiah landing on hard hearts. And a lot of you are going to hear this and you're going to follow for a little while, but you're going to... Trials and persecution come and they did and you're not going to be where to be found. Or you're going to come for a little while and the miracles are going to stop and I'm not going to be feeding you meals all the time and you're going to chase after the world and you're going to stop. But some of you, some of you are going to follow me all the way into the kingdom. You're not going to stop at the gate. You're going to come through the gate. And so we speak on a national level, on a personal level. Now here's a question for us. Did this happen? Has there been 30, 60, 100-fold multiplication of the seed of the gospel from when Christ was talking about it and Mark recorded it in the 50s? Mark's writing in the 50s, first century? It's a great question. It's a great question. Byron Bad was here last hour. Byron and Rosemary are part of our body. Byron uh, is part of East West Ministries. He oversees a set. He was here last hour, not this hour. Y'all all looking over there. Sorry, he's not there. He was where those seats are empty right there. But Byron heads up uh, a section of East West Ministries that oversees three or four countries in the form of Soviet bloc countries that are there, Kazakhstan and some others. Like, and the church is growing just immensely. Ask Byron about the church in the Stalins. Ask him. Buy him lunch. He'll be glad to share with you. He just got back this week. China. Last hour we had uh, Jody and Linda Dillo with us. Jody and Linda. Linda's an author. She's the best mentor. She spoke at our women's conference. Jody is a... Anyway, they were here last hour. Their ministry... They started the first ministry to pastors and church leaders behind the Iron Curtain in the 19, 19, late 1970s. BE, Biblical Education by Extension. I mean, we had Celestine last week, Jody Dillow this week, Linda, who's this prolific author. It's, it's amazing what God does around here. And as we're talking about the church in China, Bev and I had the privilege to go there a few years ago. They go often or have been often because of that. And first of all, the word began to spread during their time. Look at Acts. 
So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. A large number of whom? Who? Who are the priests? Jewish priests were coming to the faith. Hey guys, don't quit. The gospel is going to be multiplied 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Don't stop. And, and so it happened then. And now it's happening in the former Soviet countries and China. This is what it looks like in China right now. In the 1950s, we were booted out of China. The Cultural Revolution took place. As you guys know, many of you know, I had the privilege of serving on the board of China Inland Mission, which is now OMF. China Inland Mission was founded by a guy named Hudson Taylor 150 years ago next year. He took the gospel into inland China. When we were booted out in the 1950s, that was 150 years ago, he took the gospel of China. 150 years have passed. In the 1950s, in the 1950s, when we were booted out because of the Cultural uh, Revolution in China, we estimated there were somewhere between three to five million believers in China. Three to five million believers in China. Today, we're booted out in the 50s. The gospel was sent there 150 years ago. The 50s were booted out, three to five million believers. Right now, the seed has multiplied 30, 60, 100 fold. We estimate there are about 100 million believers in China. The fastest growing church in the world is China. You should be clapping right now. Because the seed of the gospel is being sown and multiplied. You know where it starts? Your next door neighbor? The guys you play golf with? Because now you're going to invite at least one unbeliever to do that from now on. The guys in that hunting lease? The gals in junior league, you're going to become a seed sower. And we're going to do it faithfully, regardless of the response. That's the privilege we have. That's the privilege we have. You guys know I became intimately interested in the Titanic before the movie came out, by the way, um, and read two or three books about the Titanic. Here are a couple of interesting facts. There were 2,233 people aboard the Titanic. I'm sorry, it could accommodate. I better look at my notes. Get confused with numbers. When the Titanic, uh, uh, I was right. There were 2,223 people on board the Titanic when it sunk. could carry up to 3,300 people. So 2,233 people on board the Titanic. You know how many lifeboats were on the Titanic? 20. 20 lifeboats. 2,200 people on board, those 20 lifeboats could carry, if they were filled to capacity, 1,100 people. That's it. If you remember the story, the movie was fairly accurate. It wasn't, wasn't too bad. If you remember the story, there was a major panic because they waited so long because the Titanic was unsinkable, and there was this major panic. And so people run to lifeboats, and men are letting the women and children get on, except for some men who said, I'm going anyway. And so anyway, long story short, what happens is many of the lifeboats are launched about half-filled. Twenty lifeboats at the water. They begin to roll away because they don't want be, to go under when the ship goes under. I read to you one account about the Titanic. As the half-filled boats rode away from the ship, some were too far for passengers to reach. So those in the boats began to hear the desperate cry of those who were in the icy Atlantic. The lifeboats did not return toward the wreck due to the protests from the passengers and crewmen in the boat who wanted to avoid being swamped by the drowning victims. See, they knew there were so many people in the water. 
If they went back to rescue the perishing, they'd begin to grab the sides and they'd begin to throw themselves in. And they would be swamped and they would drown. But then there's a story of one lifeboat. One lifeboat rode back to pick up people. So, you going to keep rowing? Or are you going to go back? Keep staying in your little Christian huddle. Talk about the number of Bible studies you're in. And I'm all for Bible study, believe me. But what about all these people drowning in the water? Are you going to sow the seed of the Word of God and help rescue the perishing? Jesus says, I come to seek and save those who are lost. And if we're going to be like the Savior, we're not going to miss the obvious. We're going to sow the seed of the gospel. Father, it's our prayer that we would be those who sow. God, I'm convicted in preparing this and looking at my world at times, surrounded by believers. And I want to be a sower of that seed, not just on Sunday mornings, but all the time. If you're here today and you know Christ is your Savior already, penetrating question. By sowing the seed. Not are you living a good life, that's good, but you're sowing the seed of truth with your words as well. Are you? And you may be here today and you're thinking, Gary, I, I'm that first person. I'm that person who is so hard-hearted. I'm here today. I don't want to be here. I don't believe a word you're saying. Or maybe there was a time when you thought you embraced Christ truly, but you haven't. Do you know you've been choked out by the world or some trial? You know Christ, you can't lose your salvation, but you can certainly run from him. Some of you may have had emotional experiences, but you haven't truly embraced the Savior. Hey, I invite you to, to make sure of that. What's the risk of coming to your father who loved you so much? Sent his only son on your behalf. Say, God, I, I, I think I've done this, but I'm not sure. So, Lord Jesus, today, I embrace the seed of the word. I ask you to be my Savior. I ask you for the forgiveness of my sin. So, Father, we're surrounded by people who are drowning. We sow the word. We sow the word faithfully. We realize we're not responsible for that response. So we trust you, our good Father. In your name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.